Hello and welcome to the 805 Uncensored Podcast. Today is Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. We have two special guests on the show. We have one of our regulars, Hunter James, and then we also have an LGBTQ indie game developer, former staffer for the Obama campaign, TF Wright. How's it going, TF? Would you like to just introduce yourself a little bit, please? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, uh, my name is uh, TF Wright, and I've done a wide variety of different jobs really I, I worked in politics at first um i as you mentioned i was on the obama campaign among several other mostly fundraising related jobs i then uh decided i wanted to transition a little bit and i decided to become an author and i wrote about 50 uh short story ebooks mostly focused around romance and uh then after that i um also ended up doing game development and uh, doing visual novel games, and that's what I'm, I've been working on lately. And the most recent game is Wicked Willow. Perfect. Um, well, you definitely come from a very interesting and unique background. Uh, once again, thanks so much for coming on the show, and I really look forward to the discussion. Sure thing, me too. Okay, perfect. So we'll just jump right into it. Um, my first question for UTF is, when did you work on the Obama campaign? And can you kind of talk about some of your experiences there? What was your main role? Uh, sure. Um, I worked on the Obama campaign in 2008. Um, I was a field staffer in Reno, Nevada. Um, a lot of people have kind of a misperception of what it's like to work in politics. They think that you get into a lot of debates with people trying to like uh, tell them how they should vote. Uh, like trying to persuade undecided voters or alternatively they think you're like talking strategy all the time. Um, the reality is actually a lot less interesting. What I was doing most of the time was I was just trying to identify people who were already supporters so that we could get them on a list of people to remind to vote later on. Um, occasionally, you know, you'd be asking someone to volunteer to make phone calls to do the work you were doing, but for free. Um, and you know, occasionally you would be asking someone to donate money or something, but almost always the goal is to have the same conversation over and over and over again with as many people as possible with the goal of identifying if they were already a supporter, either to put them on the list or to ask them for something. When somebody said that they didn't support you, I was actually trained not to even talk to them, not to even try to change their mind, just move on to the next person as fast as possible. So uh, politics, uh, is, it, it's a lot less exciting than people think it is. So you were, you were just more or less just trying to get people to commit that were already supporters. You were not trying to convince anybody. Yeah, the idea that convincing is a large part of politics is kind of an illusion. Like having worked in politics for a while, there isn't really a team of people that specializes in persuasion. Persuasion just doesn't happen in politics anymore. The goal is to just identify the supporters, get them on the list, and then get the supporters to actually vote when it comes time for election day so that like you're not accidentally increasing the turnout of your opponent's voters. That makes sense. Um, my next question for you is, so as a person that's pretty much on the far left, uh, I critique President Obama pretty strongly. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that he governed, he ran on change, you know, after yes. the 2008 economic recession, after we went through um, eight years of Bush, we went through 9-11, uh, the Iraq war was still going on, people were really ready for change, but he ended up just governing like a total neoliberal hack. Yes, I so, agree with that. 
I was curious to see how you feel about this um, and if working on Obama's campaign really radicalized your politics, and if so, how? Well, I don't think working on the campaign radicalized my politics per se, because like I said, I think the campaign work itself was fairly mundane. The other work that I did in politics, I did local races. I worked doing fundraising on national organizations like the ACLU, Sierra Club, stuff like that. That was all pretty mundane as well, in, similar to the experiences I described before. Um, what radicalized me more is how they treated Bernie, honestly. Um, Bernie was not really a radical. He was not really on the far left. He's someone who you, you would basically consider a centrist if he was in Europe. Um, and, and yet they treated him like he was an existential threat to the country. They treated him with a lot more disdain than they treated uh, Trump, for example. And that started opening my eyes a little bit more to uh, what was going on. And I think that if you look at the overall trajectory of the, of the Democratic Party, it, it, you can say it's drifted to the right. But the more I look back on it, the more I think to myself that at the time I was working for Obama, I just wasn't seeing things clearly. And it's been bad for a while. It was bad in 2008. It was bad in the 90s when Bill Clinton was president. Um, but yeah, seeing how much they really pulled out all the stops to hurt Bernie um, and on, on two occasions, um, mm -hmm. I think that radicalized me more than anything. Yeah, I would agree with that too. I've made that point several times that Bernie in any other country, like most of the world, he would be a centrist. He doesn't have any policies yeah. that I would consider far left. They're no. all just they're all just completely sensible. Like, how dare you give people health care? How dare you give people free education? Wow, what a concept in the richest yeah. in the richest country in the world. It's 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 beyond me. <clears throat> You're right. Now now twice there was a systematic effort to sabotage him by the establishment. I don't know um, if you heard about this. But recently, there was a producer, um, former MSNBC producer, that went on Andrew Yang's podcast, and she just straight up told him there was a systematic effort to not cover you, Bernie, or any of the outside Democrats, meaning Marion Williamson, meaning Tulsi, anybody that was anti-status quo that would challenge the establishment. Yeah, I, I'm not it's surprised. not even a conspiracy anymore. Like, they're just open about it. Correct. Yeah. Um, Ed Schultz also said he was fired because he gave positive coverage to Bernie and the network told him uh, not to do that. Um, mm -hmm. It's not surprising because I think Bernie hit the nail on the head in the first debate. Uh, he said that the biggest business community of the country doesn't just control the political establishment, they control the media establishment. And he said, as they're about to go to commercial, the pharmaceutical lobby will be advertising on this very program and as soon as they cut to commercial they had an ad sponsored by pharmaceutical companies saying don't support medicare for all and the media companies are complicit in trying to crush bernie because they think it will be bad for the companies that they are connected with meaning the oil companies defense industries pharmaceutical companies if you watch the advertisements on msnbc it's predominantly the, in the interests that you know, Bernie has laid his opposition to. And at this point, I don't think it's really about greed anymore. It's never really about greed because Bernie wasn't really proposing that any of these industries feel that much pain. Health insurance industry, maybe a little bit, but he wasn't proposing declaring war on the pharmaceutical lobby, for example. So I think what really upsets them isn't so much that their financial interest has been threatened, it's that their pride has been threatened. People who love wealth love status. They love the idea of being these unassailable elites 
and everyone else looking down on them. And the idea that Bernie was willing to call them out and was willing to directly lay blame for the country's problems or at least some of their problems at their feet, that was personally offensive to them. And I believe that they opposed him not necessarily out of a sort of class interest like you might come to if you're coming from this uh, a Marxist perspective you would say they were protecting their class interests but Bernie wasn't a threat to their class interests he just offended them personally and they used the instruments at their disposal to destroy him I think largely for that reason alone that's very interesting I actually haven't heard that perspective before and and I'm a person that's constantly around leftist circles it's, yeah, it's, it's usually the former uh, argument that you just listed. It's usually yeah. um, people are saying that he represents a significant threat to their economic interests, but I, I completely see your perspective. Yeah, it, because cause as we just mentioned, Bernie wasn't really that radical. Um, when you talk about things like um, the tax rates, for example, you say something like, oh, well, well, Bernie was going to, you know, raise people's taxes and, and, and other, you know, r rich people weren't okay with that um not in a serious enough way yeah not not in a serious enough way it wouldn't it wouldn't have necessarily reshaped anything um not not really um so why all the fear you know one really good example of this is you look at medicare for all and you think to yourself well that that may be radical from the insurance perspective surely the democrats were just upset about that well barack obama called medicare for all a good idea in 2017 mm -hmm. um why did he change his mind? Why did, you know, why did all the Democrats from Pete Buttigieg to Kamala Harris endorse Bernie's bill and then change their mind? Right. What, what happened there? If Medicare for all was so dangerous to the insurance company that they had to protect it at all costs, then why did they flirt with endorsing Bernie's idea and then oppose it? And I think it, the, the election makes more sense if you look at it from the perspective that the industry, it wasn't necessarily concerned at that particular time with the idea that the bill might pass, that it was more like offensive to them personally that at the point where you were actually running for president and people were hearing the ideas debated in earnest, that these ideas became something that everyone suddenly had to oppose and everyone suddenly had to change their minds on. It, it seemed very disingenuous to me. <clears throat> right, because, I mean, forever in this country, there's just been this keeping up with the Joneses mentality where everybody just wants to become a millionaire and a billionaire. Like, you're just, society just kind of, like, if you don't reach those upper echelons, yeah. you're a failure. Like, well, then that's what, that's capitalism, right? I completely agree. I was actually thinking about this yesterday because I was thinking about these questions. I was thinking that on the right, there's the delusion that if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, meritocracy, um, you can be successful. And I think that what's, I, I say on the right, because in reality, right-wing people very rarely actually believe this. Usually they believe some version of, you have to essentially hit the right identity groups, you know, white identity politics or Christian identity politics. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll come out and say it, they'll say, well, if you get married before having kids, that has a, a effect on things, which, which is true, by the way, but not for the reasons that they think. Usually it's like you, moderate Democrats who are, have the hard on for meritocracy, uh, basically. But mm -hmm. I think the far left has its own false version of meritocracy. And that version is, oh, what if workers owned, you know, a part of their factories, then they'd get a fair shake. What if, you know, the workers controlled the means of production, then everyone would be happy and equal. And the truth is that that's, 
that cannot possibly happen, not with the world of automation and outsourcing. And even if it was possible that workers could control their own companies, what's to stop those individual workers from acting in their interests as a group and forcing new workers to have years of unpaid internships or making the companies as small as possible so to maximize the amount of profits per worker? The truth is that not everyone will even be able to or want to become part of some sort of union-based organization. Some people will work for themselves. They'll be sex workers. They'll own a small business. They won't be eligible to have a share in profit sharing. If you, if you work at a, a small cafe, should you get paid less because you're not part of a worker co-op at Denny's, for example? So there's all sorts of new winners and losers that would be created, even if we did have workers owning the means of production. So I think that's, the, that's like the false left-wing consciousness that we have to get rid of. And instead of focusing on how can we put the economy in the hands of workers, I think we need to think about it the other way around and say, how can we give all human beings the ability to have a good life independent of their participation in any form of the economy. Guaranteed healthcare, guaranteed education, guaranteed housing, guaranteed food, um, guarantee, guarantee all of those things as rights to citizens, and then let capitalism exist as it is now, but without the ability to affect whether you can have a good life. Let capitalism just determine if you can have a gold-plated iPhone case, and let, let people worry about the status of that, and and you know, if you don't want to participate, you do not have to participate. Because we have enough resources to go around. That's not the issue. We don't need a system that forces everyone to contribute because we have 10 million empty houses. We throw away 40% of our food. Mm -hmm. um, we don't need to make more stuff. If, if we were in some sort of situation where we were all starving to death, yeah, sure, we would need to encourage everyone to contribute. But we don't need everyone to contribute. And so many of the industries that where we do have people working you know, if someone's working as an ice agent or a coal miner, we'd be better off if that person was lazy and stayed at home playing video games all day, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so, certainly in terms of uh, cl climate, too. Yeah. So it's like, on the one end, you have the false consciousness of meritocracy on the basically what's supposed to be the right. But in my opinion, it's more like the center left is what really believes in that. And then I think on the far left, you have this false consciousness basically inherited from Marx that we need to reform capitalism they wouldn't call it that, but in my mind, it's a reforming capitalism so that workers control their companies. In my mind, that's just as much of a pipe dream as meritocracy. That that will never work. Yeah, a democratization of the workplace. Yeah, just just let let go of the, like let go of phrases like working class, like you know, or you, you know, sometimes Bernie will say hardworking Americans. It's like, what about Americans that don't work hard? You know, what if you're retired? What if you're disabled? What if, like I said, maybe you just don't want to work? Does that mean that you don't get access to a good life because, you know, you would rather do these other things? What, what if you're a starving artist? Does that mean that you shouldn't have access to these things? Your economic output on the country shouldn't have any impact on how good, how good or bad your life is. Absolutely. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I've been radicalized to a degree that I don't really recognize my place on the spectrum anymore. I mean, I definitely think that I'm to the left of Bernie in some ways, but I also think that I feel increasingly alienated from the types of goals that a lot of people on the far left want because I view them as, as pursuing things in a direction that I think is, is like fundamentally a mistake. Yeah. Like it's counterproductive. I agree with you. I, I think they're definitely for lack of better words. I think there are idiots on the far right and on the far left. And I was just talking about this the other day with some of my friends. I think that there's, 
like t- probably 20 to 30 percent on both sides that completely just favor the cultural war. And what I mean by that is just like identity politics on the left and then on the right, that's traditionalism, that's religion, anything. And for me, it's just all about policy. And I think that's where most people are at. But the problem is these people just make the, the these people make the most noise. And so we're constantly just in back and forth. We're talking about shit that doesn't really matter. Like we should be talking about what we can do to solve climate change. We can, we should be talking about what we can do to get out of poverty. We should be talking about how we can expand education to indigenous and minority communities. Well, it's really hard to have those conversations because the level of propaganda in this country has reached such a, such an endemic level that you can't really, you can't really have these conversations. So let me give you an example. Among most major environmental groups, um, almost all of them uh, were recently exposed by the, in my opinion, the really great movie Planet of the Humans as essentially being stooges of the fossil fuel industry. They have invested in, you know, tree burning. They have invested in um, natural gas, coal, all of the things that we normally don't like. I mean, that movie was criticized for having a few out-of-date statistics on things like solar panels and for a conversation they had with one person that some people thought had to do with population control. I I I didn't interpret that conversation that way, but the ending part of the movie where they talked about the corruption of the environmental movement, how it was so in bed with fossil fuel industries, that was really, really surprising to me. And if you look at the closing moments of the 2020 campaign, all of these groups, including some of the more radical groups like the Sunrise Movement, endorsed Joe Biden and Joe Biden's plan for the environment. And, yeah, if you read the plan, it's worse than Trump's approach. It has more coal, more fracking, more oil drilling than Trump. And in fact, in the last few weeks of the campaign, Trump actually said he was going to reduce drilling. He said that he was going to revoke permits for all new oil drilling across all the states on the Gulf of Mexico. So Trump actually was was at Biden on environmental policy. Is that what you're talking? Yeah, about? yeah, yeah. Biden's plan was actually worse than Trump, and yet every major environmental organization in the country, including the ones that are perceived to be the most left wing, endorsed that plan. And when I read the details of the plan, and I was like how are you guys doing this? You talk to people about it. They don't want to believe it. You show them the plan. I I must have linked the article to people 50 times on Twitter. I said, read his plan. It's right there. It increases, you know, the subsidies to these groups and just nobody cares because it doesn't. Yeah. I just, so the, the propaganda is at a level where not only are the groups that are supposed to be talking about issue advocacy, endorsing the wrong candidate in my opinion I, I if it was me i would have said no endorsement or would have endorsed howie hawkins who, who i voted for mm-hmm. um but if you know that is what they should have done so not only did they endorse a candidate that was promising to make things worse than trump but when you call them out on it they just have no response at all it, it, it's it's not like they think whoa i was mistaken thanks for correcting me nobody ever says that yeah no not at all mm-hmm. um yeah the Everybody just expects, well, he's a Democrat, so he must have a much better uh, climate policy than Trump. But no, no, this is no, it, it wasn't better. It was worse. My nickname for Biden is status quo Joe. Yeah, I mean, well, that that shows you how much the party has shifted. You mentioned how Obama ran on hope and change and then kind of gave up on that. Mm-hmm. Obama, uh, that was Obama. Biden's slogan was nothing will fundamentally change. Yep. So they've abandoned all pretense of reform now yeah and and so from a rhetorical standpoint biden is far to the right of trump 
sorry, sorry he's, he's far to the right of Obama. He's far to the right of Hil even Hillary Clinton on some issues. As I mentioned on, on the issue about the environment, he is to the right of Trump. On several other issues, he tried to get to Trump's right. He said he would give more money to police officers than Trump, and he said he would give more money to the Pentagon than Trump. Mm -hmm. So the Democratic Party definitely is really racing to the right, um, and it worked. Here's the thing. A lot of people have said it was inept strategy uh, for the Democrats to abandon the working class. No, it was a brilliant strategy. Their true goal was to serve the interests of the you know financial elite, both their monetary interests and, as I mentioned earlier, their pride. They succeeded. Uh, Biden got more money from Wall Street than Trump did. And he got 51% of the vote from the regular people, despite offering them nothing at all. That sounds pretty. That sounds pretty brilliant to me. It was a calculated strategy, and you can say, "Well, yeah, but the Democrats will do poorly in midterms or something." Like, well, they don't care because the interests of the people they represent are going to do just fine if Republicans do well in the midterms. It's not important whether you know who's Senate Majority Leader or what have you. That those things don't matter to the people that pull the strings. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny is people people still actually believe that Biden can be pushed left. It, the 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 recent appointment of near near thing that was just uh, I don't even know what to say about that. Um, no, he can't. He has defined himself by opposing whatever the left has wanted his entire career. He has supported pretty much every major policy mistake the country has made his whole career: segregation, abortion rights. He was on the wrong side of that. The crime bill, he wrote it. The Patriot Act, he wrote it. The Credit Card Act, he wrote it. He voted for a Glass-Steagall repeal. In my opinion, if we had an honest media in this country, no candidate who voted for a Glass-Steagall repeal would ever be considered for anything. Like immediately, that would just be a black mark and your career would be over. Yeah. After the 2008 collapse, you just like, that person's not serious, get them out of the room. But that wasn't even discussed. Like you spent more time talking about snake emojis from anonymous Bernie Twitter people yes. than Biden's Glass-Steagall vote. And, and it's like, what, you know, uh, to give you an example, um, I actually included a discussion of Glass-Steagall in my game Wicked Willow because it said in the 90s. And almost every single person who has played that game did not know what Glass-Steagall was. They just didn't know. And it, it's not that long ago. You can say, well, it was in the 90s. Some people weren't born yet. I don't know how old you are. But it, 2008, almost everybody remembers we had a financial collapse in 2008, right? Mm -hmm. But people just don't connect it because the media has done such a poor job of communicating this, you know, again, in large part because they're protecting the interests of the financial institutions that give them their commercial money. Them. And well, our media is just worthless in this country because they're just, they're literally just the government's bitch. They just spout whatever, um, whatever politician they agree with, you know? So like, yeah. News is the propaganda arm of the Republican Party. MSNBC and CNN are the Democratic Party. Like, yes. and you you have arguments with people that it's it's so obvious that they're just drunk on MSNBC. They're just drunk on on CNN because because they just regurgitate those mainstream media talking points over and over again. And like, it drove me crazy how they just talked about Russia for what three years every yeah. single day. Yeah, it, it, when, when you think about it, it's not even necessarily misinformation. It, it is a specific point. It's almost like what they're covering. 
yeah it, it's it's kind of like a form of entertainment i think um matt taibbi is one of my favorite journalists he said that you can look at the way they do storylines professional wrestling and compare that to the media i definitely think that they cover it like it's a sporting event where the goal is to make the other side look embarrassing but it's never really about advocating for a specific agenda if if they wanted to they could advocate for like bill clinton style centrism they could point out that it had some elements of success they could say hey look at how we had all this technological innovation after bill clinton did these tax breaks you know they, they could say stuff like that they could say al gore you know was right that he created the internet look at all the way that the public private partnerships blah 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 they don't do that they don't advocate for their own agenda even they just sort of cast heroes and villains and try to make it entertaining as though you were watching a drama it's it, it's like they're trying to bring west wing to life that's mm -hmm. all they're really doing yeah it's it's all just exceptionalism um and it's all yeah it's really all just ratings yeah I, I mean because if you think about it how much how much news actually happens on a daily basis right like new almost news, not like 20 probably 20 to 25 minutes yeah Yes. But, but every mainstream media outlet's 24 hours. There's just not that much news. Yeah, I think you could make that much news if you wanted to. I think that you take a camera crew and you go out to a homeless shelter, you go out to a hospital, you go out to a veteran's home. You can find important news. You can allow people to tell their stories on camera. You can, you know, interview people who are dealing with, you know, their their insurance industry you can talk about people who are dealing with credit card debt collectors it doesn't have to be breaking news on a minute-to-minute -minute basis but if you wanted to you could fill up 24 hours mm -hmm. you know a lot focusing on human interest stories both in the united states and in other countries maybe maybe talk about the the lives of the people we bombed you know like oh, obama bombed this wedding how are those people getting along now are they resentful are they angry have any of their family members joined terrorist organizations to avenge these people is that justified like you you, you can talk about news as much as you want and find good stuff to talk about america is a big country it's mm -hmm. just that they see no reason to do those things so they don't do them and and i also i think that it's again it's it's almost more about ego than greed for a lot of people who care about money like they people who care about money don't really care about money they just care about the status they think money brings them so rachel maddow doesn't do human interest stories not because she's ideologically opposed to the message. It's because it's not about Rachel Maddow. Mm -hmm. She cares more about herself than she cares about anything else. And the same is true for all of these people. They only care about what's in it for them, basically. Yeah, they, they want to look good. They want to be, they want to be good. If, if it is a human interest story, it'll be about how brave the reporter was going into some dangerous area and not about the actual people, not about the actual policy. That, that, that is always what it is just how it makes them look and how it benefits them personally. Exactly. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit because we're talking about that quite a bit, but okay. I really appreciate everything you had to say there. Uh, well, I have a lot, I have a lot to say about that yeah, topic. It's awesome. Um, you have a lot of perspective that I don't usually hear. And I, again, I'm in a lot of leftist circles. So I, mm -hmm. your, your perspective is appreciated. Well, thank you. Uh, so I'd like to talk about your, your profession now as sure. an LGBTQ indie game developer and an author. So 
what exactly are your uh, indie games that you develop and what makes the games that you develop specifically geared towards uh, the community? I have developed two games so far. Um, I'm, I'm working on new projects, but the two that I finished are The Pirate's Fate and uh, Wicked Willow. Um, the Pirate's Fate has kind of a unique twist because it has a very, it has a unique art style. Um, the artist that I was working with specializes in anthro or furry style art. Mm -hmm. And then I, I work with a second artist for Wicked Willow, and that is a game, as I mentioned, set in the 90s, and it is a story about queer witches, basically. Um, now, I, I was thinking about this question, and I think that LGBT gaming is something that's less distinct now than it used to be a few years ago. I remember, I think in 2015 or something, they mentioned that Life is Strange was the only game with an LGBT main character that was released by like a sizable studio. That was the only one. And I think now it there's a lot more, and it's also seeping out into other games. So for example, I played Hades recently. I really love the game Hades. And Hades has a bisexual protagonist. Um, but the fact that he's bisexual isn't a core component of the storytelling or the gameplay. It's basically skippable, but it's not necessarily controversial either. Hades, uh, Sagrius is bisexual. And so what? Because we've, we've evolved in that direction. And I, I'm very happy about that. I'm happy that there isn't such a distinction between LGBT content and like mainstream games anymore. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing other titles do them. But what I would say is what's unique about the type of games that I do is I do try to make the characters journeys um, and their identities central to the story. I do try to make it something that is talked about a lot. I love Life is Strange, but the romance part of that game is 10 seconds long at the very end and it's skippable. It's not an essential part of the story, not really. You kind of have to be looking at it through a certain lens to see it that way, like leading up to that point. Versus uh, in the game Wicked Willow, um, you know, I have a large spectrum of different characters with different sexualities, different identities, different struggles. Their sexuality has affected their life in different ways. Um, and and I kind of want to, I want to tell stories that you know, you don't necessarily see explored that much in most forms of traditional storytelling, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's very much appreciated. Um, I want to ask you how you, how did you get involved in this industry? Um, well, first I did not want to do it. Uh, I just wanted to do writing and effectively I, I first started doing writing when I was a teenager, um, just kind of a way for me to connect with people. I was very socially isolated, didn't have a lot of friends and writing gave me peer validation because people really liked my writing. Um, and then I kind of decided to take that from a hobby and see if I could make it a job um, around 2014-ish. Um, and I started publishing on Amazon and I really liked that. But in 2015, um, Amazon changed their payment policies and they started paying people by how many pages people read instead of how many books people read. Mm. And that had a very negative effect on uh, authors of short stories like mine because the pay rate was half a penny a page, mm. which is really low, as you can imagine. Um, what, was so, it, what was it previously? Um, previously, if a person read 10% of a book or more, then you get a flat rate of a dollar and 10 cents. So... Uh, considering that most of my books were about 40 pages um, and I charged a very small amount of money for them, that meant that I was going from $1.10 per, per borrow to about 20 cents per borrow. Oh, yeah, that's a, it's a consider. Yeah, it was a big drop off. I think my overall income dropped by over 40% uh, after the change. Wow. So I decided 
to explore gaming primarily economically because I was like, well, this isn't working. What's another way I can combine my love of writing with just sort of another form of storytelling mm -hmm. and visual novels. That's how I kind of see them as an alternative way of telling a story. It's not really a game per se, because there's no skill involved. It's more like a, a fancy, um, you know, choose your own path mm -hmm. uh, storybook. That, that's kind of how it is with, with special effects and voice acting and, and music and whatever. But it's just a fancy way to tell a story more than it is a game for me. Yeah, it seemed, it's, I, I, I saw a little bit of it on your Twitter page, uh, Wicked Willow. It, it looks absolutely beautiful. Well, if you do decide to play, do, do you stream, by the way? I don't, actually, no. Um, I'm, I'm on a Mac right now. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, tell me what you think if you play, and if you stream, or if you have a friend that streams, let me know. I can give them a free copy or something, because I, I love watching streams. Yeah, I probably could. Um, I think I know some people that are into some PC gaming and that kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah, I'm ha happy to hook them up. I always find it really gratifying if I can, you know, write a joke and then I can watch someone laugh at that joke. It's it's very motivating to me. Um, sometimes when I'm doing writing, the only thing that motivates me to actually do it is the thought of imagining someone else reading it and enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that would be very gratifying. Yes. Doing your work is one thing, but having someone enjoy your work and appreciate it is a whole other level. Yeah. Can you explain the basic structure in layman's terms and how a game is developed? Well, uh, there are a few phases. Um, I, I'm not an expert on game development. Um, I can talk a bit about visual novels specifically. Um, in my mind, in, in my process, you have to have a script. You have to get the um, art for the game. I'm not an artist. Uh, I was the creator slash writer slash coder for these games. Um, so I worked with an artist to get the art, and that includes, you know, background art, character art, expressions, cutscenes. Um, you have to have a user interface. Um, I choose to do original music, so you have to get someone to do composing for that. And then you have to code everything. That's really uh, yeah. And then you have to get people to test it to make sure there's not problems. And then you have to go through Steam's process for getting it approved. Um, Steam is still the best place to publish. Um, and uh, and then your game is ready. Um, but I, I would say that it's it's difficult um, for reasons that you probably won't expect. And most people who try to do this don't succeed financially. Um, I think 90% of games make less than 10,000 in sales on their first year wow. if they're indie. Yeah. So don't do it with the expectation that you will be successful because you probably won't be. That doesn't mean it's impossible, just that it's unlikely. What I think a lot of people don't understand is how much work goes into a game. Like you just explained. Yeah, how, how long does it roughly take you, your, you and your team to develop this? I mean, the first game took me almost two years and I was working on it full time. I had the uh, ability to do that because I had saved up ebook royalties. But most people don't have two years of full time commitment to give a project. Um, Wicked Willow was a little bit faster. That was about 15 months. Um, and that was because I'd already done one before that cut down on the development time. And I also was working with a better engine. Uh, RenPy is the engine to use, by the way, in case anyone is wondering, use that one. But um, yeah, it is quite difficult. Well, I mean, you've defied the odds. You've done two so far, and that's really cool. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, I did uh, my best. I'd like to ask you now about your creative process. Like, what's your ideal working environment? 
Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I have an ideal working environment per se, but I will say that the thing that inspires me most to be creative is seeing an interesting idea executed poorly. And then I think to myself, what would I have done? And that usually sparks my creative juices and gets me to think of something. Sometimes the idea I end up with has no um, resemblance to the original idea. I just sort of go in a new direction. But when I see something promising that's kind of squandered, that always makes me want to ask, you know, could I have done it better? And that usually gets, sets me off in a good direction. Um, I don't know if you saw the movie The Irishman. Did anyone mm -hmm. see that movie recently? Yeah. So I didn't like that movie. Um, the very first scene of the movie, they're going around picking up the racketeering money. Mm -hmm. And I thought there was no tension in that scene because you're picking up all this money, but you already have an audience. The audience already knows what the money is for. So there's no sense of mystery or danger or anything. Yeah. So I was thinking like, what if you have a story that starts with a character who's picking up money and you're setting it from the perspective of somebody say in the back seat who doesn't know what the money is for. All they know is a mysterious person is picking up large amounts of money in an envelope and they have no idea why yeah. that creates tension right mm -hmm. so i went from there and i actually came up with an idea for a novel that i recently finished I'm not sure if i'm going to publish it or turn it into a game or something but it ends up you know it has nothing to do with the irishman it has nothing to do with the mafia at all mm -hmm. but just this idea of what if they had done the tension right on this one scene gave me the idea that that morphed into this whole thing that's great yeah, I find that really interesting. Oh, um, thank you. Um, let's talk about Wicked Willow. Can you tell us all about your stunning visual novel? I know, uh, I know you said a little bit before, it's set in yeah. the mountains, you mentioned Glass-Steagall. Yes. Um, but just tell us, tell our listeners and us all about it, your main inspiration for it, um, and just all about it, please. Oh, sure. Thanks. Well, the, the unofficial slogan is, if they call me wicked for following my heart, then so be it. So uh, you play as Willow. Uh, she is meant to be a flawed but relatable protagonist. She is someone who is, you know, has radical left politics. She is a judgy vegan. She's an atheist who says she wears a cross, ironically. Mm -hmm. Um you know, a, a brush with Teth is going to awaken her magic powers, but don't expect them to improve her attitude. So I, I wanted her to be someone who is kind of always on edge, always, you know, kind of going to get into a confrontation. Um, and uh, I wanted also to have this sort of grand mystery that you're going to reveal as you play through the story. So it's a, it's a serious, heartfelt story. Like There's that. eight branching plot paths. Um, one thing I think is also important when I say eight paths is that lots of times in story games, when you pick a decision, it doesn't actually impact the story. I don't yeah. know if you've played tell Telltale games where you click a choice and it says, so-and-so will remember that or something. Mm -hmm. and, and you just get yeah. like informed. Yeah. yeah, you get informed that things will be different, but they're not actually different. And it just sort of governs what ending you get later or something. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't like that system. So what I did for Wicked Willow is every single choice dramatically changes the story at the time that you make it. Ooh. and just creates a whole new story branch. And I had to create this whole unique lane system for making, you know, the permutations not go out of control on that. But um but yeah, you have eight different branching plot paths. Each ending reveals a unique piece of the mystery, and the endings can be played in any order. It's not like the goal is to find one true ending. 
eight each of the eight endings are sort of like a valid perspective in and of themselves and you know depending on which character you want to romance or whatever you can decide which ending is the best for you so i i guess that that's that's a little bit uh, it's a little overview i can talk a bit about the characters i wanted to create a really a really varied and interesting cast where you'd be able to sort of empathize with or, you know, root for, root against different characters, depending on, you know, whose side of the story you're hearing on different branching paths and whatever. Yeah, if you don't mind, could you could you actually go into some of the character development? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, so I have uh, Avery, who is uh, Willow's best friend, who's a little bit of a of a pushover. I think that's kind of a good foil to Willow is you have someone who is very e easy to please, very much deferential almost to a fault you have tanya who is uh this mysterious older witch with a russian accent who is a self-appointed mentor to willow you know you have lydia who is this um this right-wing southern bell type character uh i also have uh zarsi who is literally a succubus from hell who you might meet under mysterious circumstances oh wow so 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 yeah i also have Shadow the talking cat, who has this like deep booming British voice, who's kind of a kind of a comic relief type character. So, yeah, I I wanted each path to sort of reveal the different mysteries of different characters, and so you won't necessarily understand everything. Um, the game won't be different when you replay it, but what I did was I added pieces of subtext to pretty much every scene, so that when you do replay the game, if you want to. Um, you'll pick up aspects of the dialogue that you never would have understood before because they have all these um, like subtextual clues about the mysteries that you're going to find out later. You put a lot of thought into this. I did, yes. It's really a lot more intricate than people realize. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It. I mean, the truth is that um, I don't actually like most visual novels. I view them as like they're kind of too reliant on anime in the sense that like a lot of visual novels feel like they're almost attempt of like re-novelizing or re-mangaizing an anime show. Mm -hmm. And I view a lot of the dialogue as just kind of mindless fluff and banter. Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes they take, you know, several hours before anything interesting actually happens. There's not a so, whole lot of substance on the inside. So no, yeah, I, I honestly, I feel like if you love most visual novels exactly as they are, you're not hungry for anything different whatsoever. You might not even necessarily like Wicked Willow because I tried to do things very, very differently in terms of the way I structured the storytelling, the way I have a sense of momentum, the way I develop the characters. But if you feel like you want to read like an interesting like comic book that's like come to life, that that that's kind of more more of the feel that I want to do it. Like like you're like you're reading at one of those like graphic novels that are aimed at adults but mm -hmm. i turned it into a visual novel that that's kind of the feel i wanted to give it so you know what i think i actually do know somebody that i'm, I'm going to recommend wicked willow to uh, once we're done with this podcast he's a gamer he's a close friend of mine and he's an avid reader too awesome well i look forward to hopefully working with him and hopefully catching the stream live because i always try to do that and i always try to hop in and answer people's questions about the game and stuff yeah, that's awesome. I'll definitely let them know all about you and everything that you're working on. Um, can you tell me uh, one very important piece of advice that you've learned in your life? Um, I would say that it's more important to be determined than it is to have a certain set of skills if you're trying to accomplish a goal. 
Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to accomplish every single goal that you have. Sometimes you need to take a step back and say, why do I have this goal? And if you say something like, my goal is I want to have, you know, 100,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel and become, you know, internet famous. It's like, why? Why is that? Is your goal to do that because you want to be able to turn it into a job and not work? Is your goal to do that because you equate fame with being important? You know, a analyze that, ask yourself that question. But in my opinion, on most of the tasks that I've attempted to do in my life, um, the main hurdle isn't that the skill is too hard to learn. The main hurdle is that there tend to be problems that are kind of emotionally taxing. And when people run into an emotionally taxing problem, they usually give up. That's the response most people have when they deal with something like that. So if you look at game development, there's tons of emotionally taxing things. Um, I've had some difficulty working with voice actors for one particular role. I had to recast the role four times wow. because you had people flaking out or one person used an inferior microphone that was different than the one they did the audition with and wouldn't change back and other things like that. So uh, you know, that can be really hard to you know, emotionally deal with the fallout of having to replace someone in the middle of a project several times or I'll give you another example. Um, my first game, uh, The Pirate's Feet, I was using a different engine. I was using the Visual Novel Maker engine, which I don't recommend. Um, and that engine uh, had problems because we were essentially granted an early access edition of it um, because I thought that they were going to be giving me marketing support in exchange for doing that. And there were kept being problems with the game. Whenever you press the escape button in the middle of a scene transition, the whole game would crash. Oh, no. And so I went through the trouble of tracking down the person who invented this engine who lived in Japan. And I said, how can I fix this problem? And he said, I don't know how to fix it. Just release the game anyway. Lots of games have bugs. Mm. I think at that point, most people would have given up. Maybe yeah. they would have never released the game out of shame. Maybe they would have released it with this very difficult bug. I don't know. But even though I don't really consider myself a very good programmer, I thought to myself, I cannot give up on this. I cannot give up. So I came up with maybe the jankiest solution you've ever heard for fixing this problem. I made it so that every time there's a scene transition, I disabled keyboard recognition for the game so it couldn't tell you were pressing the escape key. That's great. And somehow that worked. The, the bug no longer affected it because if you press the escape key, nothing would happen. Wow. That, but that's yeah, great. yeah. But yeah, I mean, most people just wouldn't do that. I think they they wouldn't have the the fortitude to do that. Um. So so yeah, if you think to yourself, oh well, I can't do this because I just don't know. It's like you probably could do it if you really wanted to. I'm not sure you should want to, but just keep in mind that the problem won't usually be learning. The problem will be that you'll be faced with some sort of challenge that feels kind of soul crushing and you just have to keep going. You can definitely do anything you put your mind to, but you have to see it through. You have to be determined. Yeah. You, you have to ask yourself, are you, am I willing to make these types of sacrifices if it means accomplishing what I want to accomplish? And sometimes the answer should be no. So, you know, not every goal is worth achieving just because it's something that you want to do or it's on your bucket list or something. You know, there was a, I forget who it was, but there was this woman who wanted to be the first woman to, I don't know if it was the first woman or the first uh, Japanese woman to climb Mount Everest or something. I think that was her dream and uh, she did it and she died because it was a snowstorm and she froze to death. Wow. 
you know, was that goal worth doing? You know, what, what, what's the point of, of having a record like that if it means risking your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not into mountain climbing. Maybe there's other people who would say, oh, it's worth it. The thrill is worth it. And I would say like, oh, all right. But yeah, having goals is one thing, but just, you know, you knowing have to be practical. About yeah. Be yeah. Practical, know if they're achievable or not really. Yeah. If you're making a game with your friends, for example, you have to ask yourself the question, what if I get in a disagreement with my friend? Am I willing to potentially risk damaging this friendship because, you know, I have some kind of issue going on, uh, you know, with, with a disagreement with my friend? You know, what if my friend's the musician and his music just isn't very good? Can I fire him from the project? Am I comfortable releasing the music in a, in a substandard form, what do, what do I do there? You know, there's going to be uncomfortable questions that come up mm-hmm. and only you can decide how far you're willing to go on that. You really have to take so much into consideration when you start doing something such as that. Yeah. I want to ask you now, if you could create any project without any barriers, including financial, what would you like to do? Well, that is a really great question. And I think that um the biggest barrier is financial um part of it is the idea that uh you know you if you're doing this full-time like i am you do want to see if you can do something that is you know sustainable in a long-term way that's the first part the second part is um i oftentimes when you're creating something there is a sort of market that you're aiming at and that can be a problem if you shift too far. I'm, I'm kind of already running into that a little bit in the sense that I think I mentioned that when I first started writing ebooks, it was sort of romance slash erotica. That was kind of the genre. And if you describe Wicked Willow, you know, can you romance characters? Yes. Like, are there, you know, scenes of, you know, suggestive dialogue? Yes. But it's not an adult game. You know, there's no nudity in the game. It's like a PG-13 game. And I think already some of the audience didn't necessarily migrate. Um, from the the books to the game, and that's okay. They're they're. I don't necessarily have to have everybody like everything that I do, but I think that if possible, if I could just do whatever I wanted, I would just want to just let something go flow from my mind, and no matter what type of mood I'm in, if I want to do something that's adult friendly or not adult friendly or whatever, I could just write it and not have to worry who's going to like this, who am I going to market this to. You know, if I want to write something that's a a mystery story about ghosts, Mm -hmm. you know, do I have to worry if I have enough LGBT characters to have it be marketed to my Wicked Willow LGBT audience? Or if I'm making a story that, you know, how far should I push the, like I said, the adult angle? If it's PG-13, are people that liked a romance slash erotica book, are they going to want to read it? Like, like, it doesn't feel fun to think that way. Um, I'd rather just come up with something that I think is interesting and, and let the chips fall where they may. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd like to ideally do like a variety of different projects because I don't want to do just derivations of the same type of story over and over again, mm-hmm. which is what the eBooks were starting to do and turn into, if I'm being honest with you, because I, I kept getting the same requests for the same type of content over and over. And I, I kind of want to like do something different each time and, and have it be like a new creative adventure each time, you know? You can only put so much into one thing. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Just <clears throat> not being not being limited to having to appeal to a certain uh, type of audience, or just being able to be in your own creative mindset without having to appeal to anybody else. You know. Yeah, exactly. The marketing is is always uh, one of the most difficult pieces of the puzzle for me as a 
indie person and uh the idea that you have to sort of dominate a niche mm -hmm. and that's how you're going to get it out there um that's extremely limiting and extremely frustrating because I don't want to filter down my ideas in that way. I don't want to think to myself, well, I have this one niche and, you know, I am only going to get people interested if they have that sub niche. And it's unfortunate, but it's, it's, it's realistic because I've chatted with fans and some fans have actually said that they've actually said, well, I'm really only interested in reading about X. So if you don't write about X, I'm not going to read it. I can relate to that yeah. as a content creator. I mean, we're we're primarily a political show. And so just that in itself limits my audience because a lot of people are just either apolitical or just don't want anything to do with it. I mean, yeah, I had to make that calculation myself. Originally, I wanted to stay away from politics and and because I knew it would offend some people. And, you know, Wicked Willow is a bit more political than a lot of my other work. And I think with the events of this year, with the pandemic and everything, I felt like I just wasn't comfortable pretending I didn't have an opinion. And unfortunately, that has actually hurt me. I mean, it's helped me in some ways as I've met people like I've met you, and I've met other people who are really great, but I have actually had people stop being my friend. Um, I've lost professional connections with people specifically because I have stated that I did not vote for Joe Biden. And some people view that as a kind of betrayal. I don't know why. Um, I'm not going to stop talking to somebody because they did vote for Joe Biden. I'm not going to stop people, stop talking to people even if they did vote for Trump. People in my own family voted for Trump. Um, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, and, uh, but I, I have had people um, be very, very angry with, with the specific political stance that I hold. And I want to be clear here. I know that there are some people who say, well, we should just ignore political differences and all be friends. I don't think we should do that at all. I know that there was a big brouhaha when um, Ellen was like friends with George W. Bush, despite the fact that he like was homophobic, you know, and a lot of people were like, well, you're ignoring that, but you're, you're like, you're okay ignoring that. But what about all the Iraqi children he killed, you know? Exactly. And I think, yeah, exactly. So I'm not saying that. As long as it's over there. Yeah. I'm not saying that you should just be friends with people who you disagree with and ignore the disagreements because friendship comes first. I'm not necessarily saying that. I think that you should have rigorous debates with people. You should challenge them. You should bring it up. What I would have preferred if I was a, whatever the producer for Ellen is, I would say, yes, take George W. Bush to the ball game. Yes. Invite him on the show. Yes. Be friends with him. But while the cameras are rolling, challenge him, bring up the Iraq war, say, do you have any regrets? Like, if you do have regrets, how can we make amends? How can we help people in Iraq who are still suffering today? Bring it up and, and you know, bring it up potentially in a way that makes him uncomfortable. And if that ends the friendship, that's his problem. Yeah, I agree with that. But I think it's because at the end of the day, they just represent the same economic interests. They're both in the elite class. Exactly, exactly. I think that the truth is that when you talk to people who aren't professional idiots, for lack of a better word, most of the time you actually can reach a fair level of consensus. One of my favorite moments of the whole political cycle, probably my favorite moment was when Bernie was on the Fox News town hall and he got the Fox News audience to support all of his agenda, like, and they were cheering for it by the end of the show. Yeah. Fox News audience to cheer for his ideas because his ideas were so like obvious even to Republicans. They were so obviously the right thing to do. And I think that, yeah, we, we should all, we should remember that if there's people who you disagree with, then, 
you know, don't stop talking to them. Like, talk to them, challenge them, try, try to do what you can. It doesn't mean you have to talk to them about politics all the time. It doesn't mean that's all you have to do. But, yeah, I think, you, you know, how, how else are we going to have any progress if we don't at least try to make the case to people who aren't, who aren't part of the thing, you know? Yeah, I've often said just because you ignore the problems doesn't mean they don't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, <laughs> all right, huge icebreaker now. We're really gonna, really gonna let things calm down. <laughs> How do you like your coffee if you drink it? Um, I don't drink coffee, but I do like tea. Um, I had the great, great privilege of being able to go to Taiwan in the past, oh. and. I was able to go to the city of Joe Fun, which is a tea growing village in the mountains. Ooh. It's actually the, uh, it's rumored to be anyway, the village that inspired Miyazaki to create the movie Spirited Away. Really? Yeah. So it, that was wonderful. And that's like some of the best tea I've ever tasted in my life. So if you have the means to do that, I would definitely recommend doing that. Taiwan, you know, it may be expensive uh, to get a plane ticket there. And obviously we can't really travel right now, but um. It, you know the, the cost of uh, living and the food and everything yeah exactly yeah when this is all over if it's ever over whatever yeah it is a great place to go um and then correct me if i'm wrong but i believe that taiwan along with finland uh has a female leader that is correct they do they do have a female leader and uh, that leader uh tsai ing was the first leader in any Asian uh, country on earth to allow gay marriage. So, yay. That's amazing. Yeah, so we have a female and we have an actual progressive. Yes, and you also had, that person also um, appointed someone who was transgender to help lead the um, response to COVID-19. And that they created these series of like AI um, checkpoints to to predict where the areas needed to have the most lockdowns and scrutiny. And thanks in part to uh, that trans person's heroism, Taiwan has the lowest death rate per capita of COVID-19 of any wealthy country in the world. Wow. So yeah, um, in, in, some, in some ways, um, I think we, you could look to Taiwan and say, well, I guess they are doing it right. I would say That's so. Great. It's really hard to argue with that. I had a question actually now that we're um, getting towards the end of it, but um, I had a question. Uh, considering the pandemic and how some people aren't working, uh, some people are working, how has that affected your productivity in, in your day-to-day life? Um, it hasn't necessarily affected my productivity that much um, because I already work from home and, uh, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm greatly fortunate in the sense that my work, such as it is, is in no way directly affected by this. I can basically do the same as I was doing it before. Um, there are other people who are around me who are affected. Um, you know, my, my wife is a, a public school teacher, so she was affected, but fortunately I was not directly affected. Well, that's good. We really appreciate the work you do too. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so last question for UTF. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much. Um, I just want to give you one opportunity to tell our listeners how they can find your work and what do you have going on in your life next? Um, the best way to uh, find my work is to go to my Twitter page, 
and um, my Twitter is TF right. So that's the letters TF and then underscore and then write W R I G H T. Um, that's the best way to stay in touch. Uh, periodically I'll post links to like discords and stuff that I have. Discord is a really great way to reach me too. Um, and I have a few projects that I'm working on right now. I am working on uh, a couple of new game ideas. One was Metal Mom. It's like a romance slash slice of life story about an older mom and a younger female heavy metal singer. And oh, another one was, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a big heavy metal person. And then um, all right too. Awesome. Okay, I, I I won't talk you off about that because you say we're at the end, but I have many thoughts. Um, fairy telling is another one that I had, which is retelling classic fairy tales, but challenging the conventional moralities and Ooh. also adding in more LGBT representation. So that could be really fun. And then I also, like I said, had like a, a more of a traditional um, style novel that, that was about ghosts. Um, that was something that I recently finished. And the problem is it might not be long enough to do as a full novel because it's only 16,000 words. So I was thinking about maybe having it be a collection of different like mystery themed stories. And I don't know if this will work better as a game or as a book, still trying to figure that out. But um, that's what I've been working on over the past couple of days is like the, the part two for that. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Jordan, but I'm most definitely going to check out your work when we're all done with this. And I'm really looking forward to Absolutely. the future and what's to come. Well, I'm most proud of Wicked Willow. So if you do play Wicked Willow, please tell me what you think of it. All right. All right. Thanks so much, TF. I hope you have a great rest of your night. What I'll do is as soon as I finish um, editing this, I'll publish it, and then I'll go ahead and send you a copy of the link. Okay. Sounds good. Um, I, I have a quick question. Um, it, is my name going to be visible in the actual thing or no? Um, in the title? No, no, in the not in the title, no, in the in the video thing. I was just wondering if if like my name is showing up under the under the thing or not. Um, no, not your name. Okay, cool. Just 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 curious because I, I TF right is like a pen name, and mm-hmm. I didn't use that when I signed up for Zoom, so I was just wondering about that. Okay, is, is so are you using like an alias? TF right is the pen name, yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah, it shows something else. Yeah, just use TF right. All right, we'll do. Thank, thanks so much, TF. Hope you have a great rest of your night, and I'll nice send that you. link over to you. It was, it was really great talking with you. It was really great talking with you too. I I really loved, especially the 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 chats about politics. Um, you mentioned that you're in some like left wing circles. If there's like anyone else that like, if there's anybody else either about gaming or about politics that you think would appreciate my perspective, I really love doing these types of conversations with people. So, like I said, please let me know about about that, and also. Um, let me know about your friend. I'm happy to give him a free key to the game if, if he wants a key. Yeah, I'll definitely do that. I'll also talk to my friend, um, and I know some other content uh, creators that would love to link up with you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks again, TF. All right, have a great one. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.